0: We are in the Gospel of John chapter 9. We will actually end uh, this year in in chapter 9. That's as far as we're going to make it. So we've got today and then the next two Sundays to get through chapter 9. And then uh, we'll pick up chapter 10 next year, uh, which is right around the corner. But we'll take a break after uh, John 9 for our Christmas series. And that'll take us all the way up to the new year. And then again, we'll pick up chapter 10 next year. Um, And so uh, with that being said, we've made it to an interesting uh, part of the Gospel of John, where Jesus heals a man who has been blind since birth. And so this is where we're going to start um, this, this morning in uh, verse 1. And, uh, and again, we, we haven't gathered together to become smarter, to become Bible experts, to become theologians. We've gathered together to hear God speak through His Word. And so we're going to see, and we've already seen time and time again through the Gospel of John, where Jesus is speaking, he is unveiling truth, and the people who are there completely miss it. May it be our prayer this morning that we would not miss God and miss what he has to say to each one of us as we start in this together. So verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him so surely you understand the nature of the question as the disciples and Jesus encounter a man who is blind since birth the question is why does this why did this happen who caused this whose fault is this man's blindness and really to understand the nature of the question, we need to understand uh, the cultural context in which this question is being asked. So for first century culture in this particular region, whether you were a Jew or not, it was, it was a wide-held belief that if somebody was born with a deformity of any type, either cognitive or physical, that was the result of the failure of the parents, the sins of the parents, Matter of fact, the culture at large would, would um, associate any kind of suffering or, aff- aff- affirmities or or affliction to something you did wrong. So like if you think about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts 28 when he's shipwrecked and, uh, and, he, and he's, he's made it to shore and he's gathering up firewood. He gets bit by a snake and automatically the natives are like, whoa, whoa, this man must be a murderer or some kind of violent criminal because he got bit by a snake. But they would associate suffering with sin or failure. Well, what's interesting is that the Jews held this same belief, and as a matter of fact, they taught this belief, that if a person was born with any kind of deformity or abnormality, whether that was cognitive or physical, then it must be the result of the parent's sin. Now, parents, could you imagine the shame that you would feel going out into public with a kiddo who had some type of physical deformity, something visible, how everybody who looked at you looked at you like, this is your fault. It's your fault that your son is born blind. It's your fault that your daughter is born with this cognitive disability. And so it was a tool of shame in the Jewish culture to have a child born with any kind of abnormality. And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders taught this. Not only did they teach it, but evidently the disciples believed it. Because they're not just saying, hey, Jesus, where does suffering come from? They're specifically saying, hey, we just need to know. We know it was somebody's sin. So whose sin caused this man's suffering? So I'm going to talk briefly um, about suffering, the the origins of suffering, the results of suffering. Um, We're not going to go into a great deal of depth, but I'm going to give you an overview of suffering from a biblical perspective. We teach this in our biblical counseling training. Anybody here who is being equipped to counsel um, others, we want, you to, we want you to know and have an understanding of the Bible's view of suffering. So in the big picture of suffering, we understand that suffering is the result of living in a fallen world. The world we live in is fractured. It's distorted and it's broken. Okay, So because of that, suffering exists in the world. That's, what, that's why you would say, that's, that's how you would understand like a natural disaster causing suffering, causing death. It's part of an ecosystem that is fractured and distorted. That's, we just sang the, the line in the song, is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Now that idea comes out of Romans chapter 8, a section on suffering where the Apostle Paul talks about the suffering of the fallen world. that said, creation itself is groaning right now to be made new, to be made whole, to be restored. So even the ecosystem of our universe is fractured and distorted. So that we have a fallen world we live in. And within that fallen world, we have fallen, broken people. And this explains terrorism and abuse and all sorts of calamities and suffering that we experience. But in a more specific way we see that suffering oftentimes is the result of human decision, right? What we would call voluntary suffering, meaning you signed up for it, right? So this could be in breaking the law and then being punished and going to jail. Right? If you've ever visited somebody in jail or in prison, that's a form of suffering, right? And you say, hey, I'm sorry you're suffering, but it's your choices that led you here. You volunteered for this, right? You signed up for this. Or it might be some type of voluntary suffering that's maybe not criminal in nature, but maybe just, just foolish, right? Like if you, uh, if you decided to build a wooden bicycle ramp at the bottom of a really big hill and then ride your bike down the ramp and then you crash and burn and break your arm. Suffering <laughs> as a result of what? Of making a decision. Vol- you signed up for this, right? This was your decision. And so the, the results of your decision have ended with a broken arm. I'm sorry you're in pain, but you signed up for this. But then we also have involuntary suffering. Maybe this comes at the hands of like being, um, being the victim of a, of a crime. Somebody, somebody commits a crime against you. Battery, assault, abuse, neglect. These are all forms of things you didn't sign up for. Criminal charges are due, and you're the victim who has received the results of, that, of those, those decisions in the form of suffering, right? Involuntary suffering. Other examples will be like religious persecution. You're experiencing suffering at the hands of somebody else, but but not of your own volunteering. You didn't sign up for that. It's just happening to you. Um, Generational sin. Oftentimes children will suffer as a result of their parents' sin. This not in this case but in, a, in a different forms like maybe abuse or alcoholism or some other form where the parents are committing a sin and the children are not choosing the suffering. They're just receiving it as a result of the parents' sin. Okay, so we understand that within the, the big picture of, of fallen world suffering, sometimes we make choices that cause our suffering and sometimes we just receive the results involuntarily. But the Bible also talks about divine suffering, suffering that God is involved in on some level. And so I would would offer up Job as an example, right? Job was a man who suffered greatly. Do you know how that story begins? Satan comes to God and asks for permission to, to tempt Job. God grants permission. He allows that suffering to take place in Job's life. And God's there giving permission. How about the book of Exodus? The nation of Israel in captivity in Egypt, the plagues, the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Like Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 says, God is involved in the suffering of all who do not sprinkle the blood over their doorpost to to, to rescue them or to save them or protect them from the death of the firstborn. And so we have all these different examples and different sources of suffering. And that's the question the disciples are asking. What's the source of this man's suffering? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? And Jesus answers how? It was neither of those two. But this has taken place, why? That the works of God might be displayed. So not only are we getting potentially the source of this man's suffering, what God has allowed to happen, but we're getting the why behind it. Why would God allow suffering in this man's life? Jesus answers that by saying that the works of God might be displayed. Let me ask you some really hard questions. Is God justified to allow this man to suffer for the sake of displaying his works? Is God just in allowing Job to suffer? Is God still good allowing you and me to be born in a broken world that has not yet been restored and therefore we experience suffering in different ways, on different levels, for different seasons of time. Is God still just if he allows suffering? Or does this make God a mean God? One of the things we have to be cautious of, and we're going to see this mistake later on with the Pharisees, is that we hold God accountable to our standards. We create a set of standards, a description of who God should be, and anytime he doesn't operate that way, we turn on him, right? You're mean, you're unjust, you're you're, you're vengeful, and you don't meet our requirements, our standard of what a good God should look like, right? And so if we're not careful, we'll create this set of expectations of how God should operate, and when he doesn't operate that way, he's violating our rules, our standards of what a good God should be like, And we'll turn on him. We'll say, that is unjust. That is mean. That is vicious. Listen, church. God, if he truly is God, he is held accountable only to his own standards. Can we let that set in for just a minute? God is held accountable only to his own character. God is who he is, whether I believe it or not. My belief does not morph God's character It doesn't change God's identity. God is, whether I accept it, believe it, embrace it, or not. Now, the good news of the Bible is that not only is that true, but in his unwavering character, he's also good, just, loving, compassionate. Why? Because that's who he is. But he's only held accountable to his own standard of himself. Now, as we continue on in this particular instance of healing, we're going to read verse 4. Jesus is going to continue talking about the works. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus' answer to the disciples is that this man was born blind, that the works of God might be displayed, and now he says to the disciples, guys, we've got to be busy about the works of God. So if we back up for a minute, this man's blindness ultimately isn't just about this man, is it? It's about a bigger picture, something bigger that God is doing, the works of God. But that through this man's blindness and now his healing, Right? It might have something to do with you and I. Because if this isn't about the works of God, if this isn't about what God wants to to do in the world around this man, then it's really just about this man and God. But Jesus is hinting to the idea that maybe this man's individual healing might have something to do with our healing as well. And then Jesus says to disciples, guys, I need you to be about these works with a sense of urgency. Did you hear the urgency in that? Let me just read it again. So we must. Work the works of him who sent me while it is day. What's the urgency? Night is coming when no one can work. So, in the Gospel of John, the actual timeline of events is not as clear as it is in the other Gospels. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all set out with a distinct agenda to put everything in order and to show us the timeline of things and and the geographical regions where they're traveling. That's not John's goal or aim here. We talked about it last week. What is John's purpose? That we would see Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have eternal life. And he says explicitly, that's why I've written these things down. So in the gospel of John, sometimes it's hard to know, where are we at in the timeline of Jesus? So here's what we know. Chapter 10, the very next chapter is going to say, it's the, it's the, the time of Hanukkah, which would be winter time. And we know what is right around the corner is the Passover, which would happen in like early to mid-spring. So within three, two to three months, Jesus is already staring at the cross. Like He knows this is, this is coming down the pipeline. So the sense of urgency that we hear here in this particular passage, hey, guys, I need you to be about the works of God. While it's still daylight, a time is coming, two to three months from now, where I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be put to death. Right? And then I'm going to resurrect and ascend back to the Father. And until the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, it's going to be like nighttime. And so that's that urgency that we hear in this, in, in this part of the narrative of John, where, where John captures the words of Christ. He says, guys, listen, it's daylight right now. Why? Because as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Clearly referring to himself as the light. Now, as we think back um, to the first time Jesus said this in the Gospel of John, we talked about how that metaphor means that Jesus himself, his presence, his words, works, it's it's like a light shining truth into our world. So when he speaks with somebody, he's speaking truth. When he exposes something, it's like shining a light on something that has, has been like a falsehood. He's showing what is true. So Jesus himself is the light, meaning what? He is the revelation of what is true. He comes into the world like a light, showing us what is true, exposing our fallacies and our false beliefs. So Jesus is here saying, guys, listen, the urgency is that I am in the world. I'm getting ready to leave. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So while I'm here, guys, we've gotta be busy doing the works of God. Now, verse six, having said these things, He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, "Go wash in the pool of Siloam, Siloam or Siloam, and which means sent." So he went, washed, and came back seeing. So Jesus has now healed the man, but we know that ultimately Jesus is saying this man's healing is not about him. It's not about his parents. It's about what? The works of God being seen, the works of God being displayed, the works of God shining like a bright light in the darkness of our world. Now, what's interesting is that this isn't the only case where Jesus heals somebody. You may be familiar with some of the other stories where Jesus heals somebody. Like there's one um, occasion where there's a man blind that Jesus heals with simply his words. It's in Mark chapter 10 he speaks, and the man receives his sight. In Matthew chapter 9, it's a touch. Jesus just touches the man's eyes, and he is healed. In Mark chapter 8, he actually spits in his hands and then lays his hands on the man's eyes. So four different ways that Jesus uses or methods that Jesus uses to bring about healing for blindness, which tells us a couple of things. First of all, it tells us that the method doesn't really matter. It's It's the source of the healing, which is Jesus, right? That's the variable that doesn't change, that Jesus is the source of healing. But it also tells us that in a very intimate way, Jesus is willing to to touch our wounds and heal us in a way where, where we know it's him working. Like the way I think about it is that Jesus is willing to touch our felt needs in order to get to our true spiritual needs. It's like Jesus doesn't just heal, he calls us to go sin no more, right? It's not just about the physical healing, it's about calling people into spiritual healing. And so the method he chooses is very unique and specific to that individual, but the healing comes from him. Now, why is that important? We're gonna see in just a minute that the accusation brought against Jesus is closely connected to the method he chose. I think he chose this method on purpose, to spit into the dirt and to make clay and put clay on the man's eyes and then send him to wash and come back seeing So, verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. And others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So now, other people are starting to notice. Wait a second. That's the guy who used to beg. And he's like walking around, not running into stuff. Like, something, like, what happened? And some of the people are like, oh my gosh, look, can you believe it? He can see. And others are like, that's just too good to be true. That's got to be somebody else who just looks like him. So the neighbors are beginning to dispute whether or not this is actually the same beggar uh, that was blind from birth. Okay, and is there disputing this amongst one another... The man's like, wait, wait, I am him, it is me. And so now they're gonna turn to him. So they said to him in verse 10, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam, Siloam, and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So once again, let's revisit the purpose, not only of this man's suffering, but the purpose of the healing, according to Jesus, is what? That the works of God might be displayed, clearly seen, made visible. That's the purpose here. Now the neighbors are taking notice. So what would God's agenda be for the neighbor's? that they would see this man healed and they wouldn't just marvel that he can now see, but they would marvel at what? The works of God, the power of God, the mercy of God displayed through this man's healing. But they're not all getting it, are they? Like they're not even agreeing whether or not this is actually the man. They're can't. they disputing that. And so here's what they're gonna do. They're gonna take the man now to the Pharisees to try to get an official answer on what in the world happened to this man verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. That is a really important sentence. It was the Sabbath day, the day of rest, the day that's set apart, the day where you're not supposed to work and Jesus is spitting in the dirt, making clay and touching the man's eyes. So the Pharisees, verse 15, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. It almost seems like he's getting a little perturbed, right? Like, I don't know the answers to your questions. All I know, he spit in the mud, put the mud on my eyes, told me to bathe, I went, and then I came back seeing. So some of the Pharisees in verse 16 said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet? At this point, he's just kind of guessing, isn't he? I don't know. All I know is I was blind. He put mud on my eyes. I went and bathed, and then I could see. All I know is it was this guy and the dispute now has morphed a little bit. The Pharisees are saying, there's no way that this man could could be from God. Talking about Jesus, why? Because he has broken the Sabbath. So how could a sinner be from God? And then the people are saying back to the Pharisees, what are you talking about? This man couldn't be a sinner? Look at how powerful God is working through him. Surely he's not a sinner. What I, what I need you to understand is that, so the, the Jews, the Pharisees, had the same Old Testament you have, same one, okay? And so what happened is year after year, generation after generation, the rabbis would stand up and teach like I'm teaching. The priests would stand up and teach. And they had these oral traditions or interpretations or explanations. And then they begin to take those oral traditions and write them down. And before you know it, they begin to write down an additional law, this additional law, written by the Pharisees, was a collection of teachings regarding the Old Testament known as the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, there were 39 different types of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath. Let me just give you a few examples. grinding grain.' Was part, of the, was part of the rules. If we're going to keep the Sabbath holy, you cannot grind grain. you can't shear wool. You can't sew with thread. Matter of fact, you can't even dye thread. Change the color of it. You can't knead dough. And oh, by the way, you can't make clay. Now we begin to catch on to what they're doing here. He has violated our law. He can't be from God because he's not conforming to our standard of who God should be. Jesus can't be from God. Why? Because he's violating our law. And they're declaring him a sinner because he's violating the law of man. Well, the great irony here is that they're trying to convict the creator (laughs) of violating the law of his own creation. And so they're beginning to dispute here with the crowd. I think it's so important that we stop for a minute and maybe recapture the essence of the Sabbath to begin with, to understand what God's law was about the Sabbath and how these Pharisees had added to it. So the Sabbath, the the, the pattern for the Sabbath is embedded in creation itself. God created the world in how many days? Well, that was a trick question, wasn't it? He worked for six days, and then on the seventh day, he did what? Rested. Now, did God do that because he was worn out and tired? Stressed out, needed to regroup? No. He was setting a pattern for creation that as as stewards of creation, mankind, we would work hard. We would be diligent workers. We would work hard, but we would stop every week to acknowledge who it is who actually provides for us, who it is who blesses the works of our hands, who it is, right, who ultimately is making this universe work because we get this mindset of like, if I don't do this, the world's gonna quit spinning. You ever felt that way? There is so many things on my account. I got to get it all done. I, like, I would love to take a break. I just can't. That's a mindset that, that is embedded in this idea that if you don't get everything done on your list and keep all these obligations you have, the world will quit spinning. And God reminds us, right? Like, no, that's not how it works. I need you to take a break once a week just to remind yourself of who it is who makes the world spin, who keeps the universe in order, who makes the clouds rain, who dries up the ground, who causes the wind to blow, who makes snowfall, who causes trees to grow. Like the entire ecosystem of the universe is in his hands. And so he established the Sabbath. In Exodus chapter 20, 10 commandments, we get our command for the Sabbath. Listen to this, it's really important. Here is the command, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or your sojourner who is within your gates. And then it's a reference to creation. For in the six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy or set apart did you notice the command the command is to remember the sabbath why do you think that's the command does you have to look very far to come with the answer right we're prone to forget it we're prone to blow right through it we're prone we're prone to build up such a hectic schedule that where the universe is hinging on our shoulders that we blow right through the sabbath Right, We convince ourselves the Sabbath is for everybody else, but not me. I'm way too important. I've got way too much responsibility. If I don't keep working, fill in the blank. And so the command is not just keep the Sabbath. The command is remember the Sabbath. You are going to be prone to forget it. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So what is the Sabbath? The idea of the Sabbath is rest. That's why people go on sabbatical a time of rest. So once a week, you and I would rest from making a living, rest from working hard for provisions. Doesn't mean you stay inside and sleep all day. It just meant that you, you take a day away from believing that everything is up to you or the universe will fall apart. It's a day to rest from what you and I think we can do from our, for ourselves. It's a day to trust in that God will provide It is a day to remember the works of God and it is a day of worship, to worship God for who he is and what he has done. The Sabbath is meant for you and I to take inventory, to look back over the previous six days and acknowledge the works of God in our life and allow that to to, to stir up trust. If he took care of me the last six days, he'll take care of me for the next six days. So I'm gonna rest today to remind myself, it's not up to me to remind myself it is ultimately God who provides. And that's the essence of the Sabbath. But everything else that was added to the law are the standards of the Pharisees, the standards of man. And so they had built out 39 additional laws in relation to the Sabbath. And this is their sticking point with Jesus. He can't be from God. He's a sinner. What? How could you call such a holy man a sinner? Well, because he broke the Sabbath law. No, he broke your law. See, in this moment, God is not conforming to the standards of man. God is not bowing down to become the God that these Pharisees had in their mind. Instead, he's operating as who? God. Now, listen, church. One of the things that I believe the Pharisees had done by this point is they had created a false God, a false view of who God is. Therefore, they were worshiping a false God that did not exist. I know that's a pretty... It's a pretty lofty criticism. But anytime you or I worship, obey, bow down to a God that is different from the God of the Bible, it's a false God. He doesn't exist. And so the Pharisees had built, created this God in their minds. They taught it to their people. And this is why Jesus comes as the real God, and he's not fitting in the box. And so they're looking for reasons to discredit Jesus by violating their standards and their law. Spiritual blindness, rooted in what? Arrogance, self-righteousness, the religious systems of man. And ultimately in verse 16, their accusation against Jesus is, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And they could have, should have kept talking the way we think he should. And they accuse him because he made clay. That's why I think Jesus did that on purpose. I think he intentionally violated their law so that he could do what? Shine a light on the real law of God. He broke their version of the Sabbath so that he could illustrate the true meaning of the Sabbath. A time to acknowledge the works of God. Not to deny them. Not to criticize them. Now I want to I'm gonna leave you with a couple of questions today. How do you know if your spiritual eyes have been opened? Because see, this is actually the point of Luke 9. The physical healing of this man is meant to illustrate God doing a more powerful work, opening the eyes of the spiritually blind, not just for this man, but for his neighbors, for the Pharisees, and for you and for me. How do you know if your spiritual eyes have been opened? Well, here's a question you could ask yourself. Do I reject God's work in my life when it doesn't conform to my plans? Do I reject God's work in my life when it doesn't go according to what I expect, want or ask for? You ever been mad at God? You ever you ever turned to God in bitterness and anger? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why didn't you work this out? You know what's happening in that moment? The God of the universe who doesn't change has not conformed to the God you want him to be. Now, I want you to hear me on this, church. That is one of the things I love most about God. He does not conform to the idea in my mind of how he ought to be. Any God who would conform himself to your way of thinking, to your standard, is not a God worthy of worship. Hear me on that, church. Our God is higher than that. Our God is more lofty than that. The point of the song we sang and the scripture that Jason Martin read is that in all of heaven, no one was found worthy to open the scroll to unlock the future. And so there was this great cry in heaven, who is gonna open the scroll for us? Enter Jesus and he opens the scroll. He is the only one who is worthy. Any God that would conform himself to your image is not a God worthy to be worshiped. Jesus is not bowing down to the religious expectations of the Pharisees, nor will he bow down to ours. He is who he is, and he always will be who he is. Last week, he is the I am. He doesn't change. He always has been. He always will be. And so how do we know if our spiritual eyes have been opened? Think about your prayer life. Do you reject God's work in your life when it doesn't go according to your plan? Or do you embrace God's work in your life, even if it looks different from what you thought it would look like? Do you think that this man's life is what his parents dreamed about when they found out his mom was pregnant? You think this is what they hope for? Oh, I'm so hoping God gives us a blind child. It's going to be rough for a few years, but then Jesus is going to show up and do this big deal, and the Pharisees are going to be put just like, no, they wanted a healthy son with eyes that could see, who'd have fun with his friends. They wanted all these good things. And the fact that he was born blind was not the result of his parents' sin or his sin, but for what reason? That God might open the spiritual eyes of the blind, for this man, for the neighbors, for the Pharisees, and for you and for me. And so I want to end there today, just leaving you with that really difficult question. Do you embrace or reject God when he does not conform to your plans? I'm going to pray for us now. And and maybe you're here today and, and like you've never taken that first step to become a Christian. So what does it look like to become a Christian? It means that you take a step of faith to believe that Jesus is the son of God. And that by believing, you would have life in his name. And so if that's you, I'm gonna pray you would take that step today. Or maybe there's a different step that God is calling you to. Maybe like the Pharisees, you've built this false image of who God is. And so today you just need to put that God away. You need to, you need to set that God aside to worship the true God of, of the Bible. Or maybe you're in a really hard situation, maybe even a situation of suffering. And maybe you're frustrated God. Maybe you're mad at God. Maybe God has not conformed to your image of what he should be like and what he should do. And so maybe today would just be a day of rekindling your worship of the one true God, saying you are God whether you do what I ask you to or not. Man, that's a powerful prayer, isn't it? You are God whether you do what I ask or not. And here's the good news, church. God is good. He is a loving father. He enjoys not only hearing our prayers, but responding to them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this powerful reminder from John chapter 9 of who you are, that you are not a God who is shifting, changing. You are not a God who conforms, but you are a God who has always been and who is and will always be. Father, we worship the same God who created the universe. Jesus, we see in your example here in John 9, not only do you heal physical ailments for the sake of opening blind eyes, but you do that for the the sake of opening spiritual eyes as well. So Jesus, now as a church, I pray that you would, God, use this time, use this time in your word to refine our understanding of who you are. Could our our deepest passion and desire as a church be to worship the one true God, the God of the Bible? Father, would you show us where we have built false images of who you are? God, would we lay those things down today? Father, we're so thankful that you are a good God. You are a merciful God. You are a compassionate God. We ask for your Holy Spirit to move now in this room, work in our lives, We pray all this according to your will in Jesus' name.